0: Welcome once again to the Religions Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gardner. This is the podcast where religious and scientific truths are celebrated and not pitted against one another. If you are new to the podcast, you may not even realize that today's format is a departure from the normal format. Usually we tell stories to teach and highlight some scientific or religious principle. And then uh, the goal there, of course, is to help you understand something that will help you better live in the world or better understand the world you live in. Today, instead of a story, we will have an interview with a dear friend of mine and someone who has done a great deal of learning in the topic of today, which, of all the topics uh, that there might be that would bring science and religion into disagreement with one another, today's topic is probably the worst of those. Today we're going to be talking about organic evolution. I want to stop for just a minute before we get started and say a few words To you, my dear listener, before I introduce the topic, I am assuming that many of you at this point have already decided whether or not you believe in evolution. I would encourage you to keep your minds open as you listen to the discussion today. I will uh, be as upfront as possible with you about all the facts on both sides. I have had my own struggles as to what I believe as far as evolution is concerned. Um, as a teenager, I was firmly decided that evolution was a sure sign that scientists were very fallible very fallible, and that they got some weird ideas stuck in their heads and wouldn't let go of them, and that they were, you know, very, very far from the truth. Now, the idea that mankind came from some lower life form, which was at one point resemblant of a monkey, was very much distasteful to me. Repugnant, revolting, repulsive, some other re-word... Um, Anyway, the idea is it was it was terrible to me. I hated it, and I had firmly decided that it was absolutely not true. I retained this view and never gave it a second thought until, in college, I attained an introductory um, geology course and an introductory biology course as well, but my geology professor in particular, while not applying pressure um, for us to believe or not... Um, however, made it very clear that he did, that he did believe, and that he had no problem living as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and believing in organic evolution. Now, that troubled me greatly. He was an instructor that I identified with, and he taught in a way that resonated very well with me. I was not, I was troubled that he could accept evolution and, and remain a level-headed person that I looked up to. So it's like, how could he be thinking this? So I had a, I had a conundrum there. Now it troubled me for a time, but I you know I put the topic on the shelf and came back to it later. It was uh, not too many years later, actually, that I ended up teaching a life science class to a group of sixth graders. I had to confront the topic again, and I uh, I had to figure out how can I teach this without feeling like I'm betraying what I really believe. In other words, if if the students were to confront me about, hey, uh, Mr. Gardner, do you believe that this is right? Then I had to I had to be ready to answer in a way that wouldn't say, wouldn't totally throw out what I had, what I was teaching them, because I understood that the scientists had a lot invested in it, and a lot of work, and a lot of research, and a lot of time, and all of that seems to still point to evolution. So I had to do some resolving. Now. Um, what I did was I I just I took a fresh look at it, and I was willing to listen to some of the things that I had read about Darwin and learned a little bit more about him and the discoveries that he made that led him to the conclusions upon which he based this theory, or this hypothesis is what it was at the time. In short, I believe uh, that uh, sitting back and taking a second look at it and trying to understand where he was coming from, trying to understand the the guy with the idea, I was able to open my mind to the point where, in fact, I actually now believe it. Um, I can I can hear the questions now. Many of you may be sitting back thinking, wait a minute. Maybe you have like 30 questions actually for me. As to how in the world I can resolve the idea of revolution with my religious beliefs. And let me state this as clearly as I can. I don't resolve them. I don't even try to. I learned them by different methods, um, both of which taught me much truth. I've learned a lot from science, from that kind of thinking, from finding out, forming a hypothesis that is falsifiable. And what that means is it's a hypothesis that if it's false, I can find out by doing a test. That's how science does its learning. Um, I've also done a lot of learning by faith, where I act and then can feel what I have acted upon to be correct. So, they're two different things. And my understanding of how the world was created, well, obviously I have a faith understanding on that, and I stick to that. But I also believe that there is much truth contained in evolution, and that the, the findings that, that Darwin put forth when he first hypothesized this are correct that's what the evidence leads us to. It's undeniable. Now, there may be some new discoveries in the future that would point us in another direction, and then we would clarify what we understand on evolution. But as of today, with the data that we have, and that's a lot of data, and a lot of research, and like I said, a lot of man hours, and a lot of finding of fossils and other things, to our best knowledge today, this is how it happens. All the evidence points in that direction. So, here's my advice. If you are one that is having trouble, um, if you have some challenges, and you want to keep your faith, and you're worried that that something might shake your faith, here's the suggestion that I have for you. And, and if you feel like this might be shaking your faith in some way, then here's my suggestion to you. Keep studying from the Scriptures daily, and keep searching to strengthen your answers to a few important key questions. Find key questions to your faith, and keep them in front of you every day and keep searching for answers to those because in continual learning you'll keep the learn you'll keep things fresh in your mind and in your heart especially when it comes to learning in spiritual matters here for example here are some of my key questions that i ask myself that have helped me to to keep them clear in my mind and not just in my mind but also in my heart now not just and i want to make this plain too it's when it comes to religious matters, it's not just a matter of learning and putting it in my head. It's a matter of acting on it. That's where the faith comes in. Faith is a thing that leads to action. And you can learn a lot from that from little kids. They know that they can open that door before they can reach the doorknob because they see you doing it. So anyway, um, we need to act in faith on, on key questions that are important to us. Here are my key questions as an example. And these are not necessarily in order of importance. These are just ones that I ask myself and that I act on. And as I do, I'll know in my heart and in my head by the, by the feelings that I get when I act on these things and when I learn about these things that they are either true or false. And so far, the answers have been good. That's why I'm here talking about both religion and science. So the first one, is there a God in heaven who is the father of us all? Does God love us? And if He does, what does He want our relationship with each other to be? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and did He come to earth to save us from sin and death? Does God the Father and/or the Son speak to mankind? Does Christ have a church on earth that He leads through His chosen servants, as is suggested in the New Testament? So these are five questions that I ask myself, and uh, I don't ask myself all five of them every day, but as I am studying and learning in in God's Word, in the Scriptures, these are things that I frequently come back to. And they're ones that I try to keep fresh on my mind and practice so that I can have them in my heart as well. That's the thing about religion, is it's, it's a heart learning activity, not just a brain learning activity. If you do something like this, I think you won't find that you have any trouble when, when some new thing comes along that, uh, that rattles something that you believed before or tries to challenge it. And I hope that today when you're listening, you don't feel that this is trying to challenge your belief in how the creation happened or anything else. Simply, like I said, try to understand it from the viewpoint of a scientist who's observing data and explaining it as best as they can because that's how science works. Um, Richard Feynman, I think, explained it very well. He, uh, he was asked once, Richard Feynman is a, is a fairly famous physicist, and in, he was a teacher of, of physics at Caltech University. Um, Caltech, is at a university? I don't know. But anyway, he was at Caltech. And he, he said in an interview when asked if he was looking for the um, universal theory that explains all science in one. He said, no, I don't know that I'm looking for that. I'm just looking to find out how things are. And if, if there is one explanation that explains everything, then yeah, that's what I'm looking for, but not directly. I just want to answer my questions. And if it turns out that the world is like, uh, you know, the answers to the world are like uh, the peels or the layers of an onion, and you have to peel it back layer by layer by layer, then that's how it is. I want to learn about nature as she is. That was, and that's me paraphrasing his answer. Um, I like that answer. That's how science works. That's how scientists learn. And it has been very effective and a very important mode of learning for a lot of years and has helped us to do a lot of things. Another thing that I think is important when, when we're looking at our religiosity, if, if that's even a real word. It sounds cool, so I say it. Religiosity. I think the most important thing that we can remember is what the Savior taught us He taught us that the great commandment is to love God and to love our fellow men. I think, above all else, we should take care of each other, love each other. And by love each other, we don't wish ill will on others. If you're feeling offended or upset about something that a scientist has taught, to the point where you're starting to objectify them a little bit, or say things like they must be stupid or whatever, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You're starting to get some contention in your heart, which I think is worse than whatever the scientist is trying to tell you, and probably more destructive to you as well. So hopefully you'll sit back and listen with a new thought. Now, there's a prophet, an ancient prophet, who said something very profound when he was having, well, it was a vision. An angel was revealing things to him and giving him a vision, and his name was Nephi. It was about 600 years before Christ. And uh, this prophet in this vision was asked by the angel, knowest thou the condescension of God? And the prophet's response, and he, he wasn't, well, maybe he was a prophet at that point, but he became a prophet to his people. And here's what his reply was. He says, I know that he loveth his children. Nevertheless, I do not know the meaning of all things. And of course, the condescension of God talking about Christ coming to earth. He did not understand all of that, but he did know that God loves his children. Do you know the same? I hope you do. And if you do, and if that's one of those questions that you have, and if that's in your heart, you don't need to worry about things, and you don't need to worry about getting offended and getting upset at other beliefs that are, that are proposed. Understand that that belief is coming from a, a child of God as well, just like you are. And that belief may have some foundation in the truth, and for them, they wouldn't be telling you what they're telling you if they didn't believe it. So give them the benefit of a doubt. So as my guest, Dr. Michael Gardner, and I discuss the interview and the idea of evolution, I want you to keep in mind that the theory of evolution was neither developed to contradict religious principles, nor was it developed with any animosity toward the traditional understanding of the biblical story of the creation. I would ask you to listen today, not to try to disprove the idea of evolution in your mind, but instead try to understand why scientists who study in this field, why they believe it's right. These scientists are not trying to prove our religion wrong, and they're trying to explain what they observe in the world around them. If you encounter someone who tries to make an argument that evolution disproves the creation story, and that that person is not acting in a scientific role, because that's not what objective scientists are trying to accomplish. So listen without judgment and seek to understand the principles taught. They have very important applications in the practical world and very important implications for all of us to be aware of. Without any further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Michael Gardner. Joining us tonight to talk about organic evolution and Darwin's theory of evolution um, is Dr. Michael Gardner. How are you doing tonight, Mike? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on. Well, good. I'm glad that you're able to join us and uh, we're able to have this this discussion and hopefully learn a little something tonight. You, you up for learning something? Always. Okay. Well, actually, I'll be the learner. So, well, maybe you'll learn something too, but I doubt it. <laughs> we'll learn together. Yeah. Well, sounds good. Yeah. My listeners probably already clued in to the idea that you're Michael Gardner, and the same last name as Stephen Gardner. So, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and and let everybody know who you are?
1: Okay, um, I'm uh, Michael Gardner. I'm Stephen's. I guess your uh your nephew. Um, you guess we're a few years. <laughs> is a that few years apart? That's
0: hesitating. I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, so I'm. Uh, I, I live in Arizona in Tucson. Arizona. Um, and, uh, I've got three kids. I'm a dentist and I also work with an engineering firm. So it's kind of a mixed science background that I have. And, um, I enjoy kind of working in a couple different fields. It keeps my mind active.
0: And I bet it does now with the engineering firm. Is it, uh, I know you study geology. Is it yes, geologic it work well. that you do with the, with the firm?
1: Yeah, it's called geotechnical engineering. And so um, it's involved with construction of bridges, roads, dams, buildings, any of those kinds of things. Usually we'll have a geotechnical engineer doing something to check the soil that the structure will set on to, to make sure everything stays stable the way is intended.
0: Which is a, a very vital piece of, of any kind of construction. So your geology background, I'm guessing, is where you probably got your, your introduction to, to evolution. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, between geology and uh, biology class, um, there's a couple different angles that I've got it from. Uh, the biology class covers it slightly different angle than geology has, and it kind of leads to the same ideas.
0: Sure. And I should point out too that uh, you, being my nephew, actually you're you're closer to my age than my next brother, older than me. Um, so you you were actually one of my closest relatives growing up. You you were one of my best buds. I think I would I would say growing up. Yeah, is that fair to say? We had a lot of.
1: F- Fun together. It's, what is it, like three or four years is all that's between us. So. Yeah,
0: yeah, where there's, you know, almost six years between myself and, and my brother James. So, yeah. So, anyway, so if we have fun today, you'll know why. Even though we're really, you know, neither one of us is that fun, I guess.
1: Are we? Well, I, I, I'm a dentist sometimes, <laughs> so, you know, I got to let my boring come out. <laughs> so, if I drone on a little bit, you'll know why. All, all day
0: long, you're, you're <laughs> drilling teeth, so that's... Don't you have to learn really good jokes in order to have that profession?
1: Uh, Generally, several kind of corny, lame jokes is all that's required because, of course, my... Um, what do you call them? The group that's stuck listening to me really <laughs> your, can't go anywhere.
0: Your victims so, are patients.
1: <laughs> yeah. They don't have to, uh, you know, they've already paid by the time they're back. So <laughs> if they walk out, well, it's, you know, it's already covered. So there you go.
0: <laughs> you have a lot of experience and a lot of background as the listener is now aware. We want to talk a little bit about Darwin's well, what Darwin discovered that uh, has become known as the uh, theory of evolution, and uh, where where should we start with that, Mike? What's a good starting um, I point? Think,
1: yeah, so um, I think one of the helpful things when when we think about evolution is the idea that um, it kind of needs a, a a basis and an understanding that the Earth, as it is now like it's pretty similar to the way that it was millions of years ago like the the environment of the earth hasn't drastically changed in any significant way because otherwise it would throw a big wrench into the idea of evolution
0: and well and geology um, in general i'm sure too
1: yeah i mean cuz you know, evolution depends on a gradual change in, in, in things. And if you have significant changes in the environment, then it makes it very difficult for an idea like evolution to um, make a lot of sense. For for example, if like, if the world, um, if the earth, you know, was uh, one moment, you know, in, in a, in In one moment it's as we know it and then another moment it turns into something like Jupiter and all the all the all the plant and the animal life can't exist anymore. right It's so changed that you can't have things living the way they do now, then you can't make a case for evolution, right So it but it's really hard to go back 20 million years except through the ways that we do indirectly through science now. Well, very good. So um, in our next
0: step here, let's uh, let's look a little bit at this idea. There, there's a term natural selection, which is tied in with, uh, with evolution and understanding biology in general. Can you
1: tell us a little bit about natural selection and what that is? So kind of the way that I understand natural selection is that, um, you know, we have – different organisms living on the planet and the environments that they're in and earth and the environment will change and through change, it puts a pressure on organisms to, you know, to, to respond the organism will have to respond to the changes in weather or the changes in rainfall or, you know, the changes in, other organisms that are around in the area. So something and akin so, to
0: what the, we're talking about polar bears having to do now with the ice melting. Is that similar yeah, to what so, you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so the polar bears have to get to learn um, how to live in a changing environment um, or they don't tend to survive well. I, I had a teacher once who uh,
0: I think perhaps they were explaining it to me. because at the time I wasn't understanding a lot of that, but they basically said natural selection is like, uh, let's say we have a a razor blade, an invisible razor blade placed in the doorway at about uh, five and a half feet. So anybody who's taller than five and a half feet, you know, they're going to have a problem going through that door. And eventually the only people that are going to be going through that door are people that are shorter than five and a half feet. So
1: Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's, that's, um, that, that, that's put um, yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, you know, and, and it, and I, but I don't think it's quite that simple because you could have people that are behind the others who happen to be six feet tall and suddenly lose half their scalp, Right who see something and recognize like, Hey, that doorway, if I'm going through it, I need to duck. Right. So it could be that you just created a habit of people ducking when they walk through a door, (laughs) right? You actually, maybe you didn't select, maybe you didn't select for five and a half feet tall people, right? You've just selected for people who duck before they walk through doors. Okay. Makes sense. So like,
0: so people it's, intelligent enough to say, not, hey, don't uh, – what's the, what's the movie uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Uh, the penitent man will pass. You know, the one who learns to to, <laughs> to bow and roll oh, is yeah, okay. Exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> the one who doesn't, doesn't yeah, make so it. So
1: suddenly, suddenly you've got this – suddenly you've created this character trait inside of people where whenever they walk through doors, they know that they should duck. Which may not serve them well when they leave that area and they go somewhere else. They go to Italy, where they don't have razor blades over doors, just in you know small town Idaho. And they leave small town Idaho with their science professor there, who 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 <laughs> who selects for five and a half tall people. And then they go they go to Italy, and suddenly in Italy that's not an issue. But they have this weird thing where they duck and roll when they run when they go through a doorway,
0: and that's that may true. not
1: that. That may not serve them well in, no. in, in Italy.
0: No, and the Italians will be uh, furrowing their eyebrows and thinking, "What is wrong with these Idahoans that are coming <laughs> to visit?" Yeah, and they don't like our pizza either, you know.
1: So yeah, and, and that's that's another interesting thing of evolution because you know we can we we often uh, it's often taught or the ideas seems to be presented that evolution is somehow always good. But it, I I don't think you can always make the case that it always selects for the best, like this survival of the fittest idea. Like, okay. it's not. I don't think it's quite. Um, it. I don't think it quite explains like really what it is. It it's may be fittest simple. in a particular scenario, but it's not necessarily fittest in every case.
0: That makes sense. So for, well, like you were saying that it serves you well in Idaho to duck in the doorway because the teacher put the razor blade there, but it doesn't serve you in Italy. So what is beneficial to, in to one geographic region of, of a species might not be beneficial to another geographic region of that same species as they migrate. Yeah. Sure. Makes sense. So one of the ideas that, uh, is kind of in, you know embedded in the idea of evolution is that that life does change that the forms of life change over over time. So, Mike, tell us how how do changes get introduced? Like, uh, oh, well, pick an animal that you want and, and tell us how a change might be introduced.
1: The textbook articles that you'll see is the uh, the moth one. You know, the moths changed color in England during the industrial revolution as a result of darker smoky air and the lighter color moths it was easier for the predators the birds and other things to capture the lighter color moths and um that makes sense so so that's 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 the that's one idea of how a a certain species would be selected for changed over time. Um, Another one is just a result of the environment, not, not just, you know, human caused environment, but like the weather changing in an area or some kind of, you know, the, the idea of the dinosaurs. So something catastrophic happens and it, kind of wipes out a certain group and suddenly the dinosaurs aren't able to reproduce. They don't live well. And so you select for a different set of organisms, the mammals that can stay the course through the global catastrophe. And, and, And another way is just through the process of DNA replication. So DNA polymerase goes through and and makes copies of the existing DNA and and over time and over time there's little changes or little imperfections in the copying by DNA polymerase and then you end up with a different chain of DNA and then you have a a slightly different organism with the chance to either be successful or not
0: so in, in Idaho, we have gray mice, and that's the, that's the color I see all around me out here in the fields. And I know that there are black mice, there are white mice, there are other colors of mice all over the place. I've seen them at the pet store, and I've, I, I'm i told about them in other places, even though I mostly see gray. And I'm assuming that they are gray, and this came to mind because you, you talked about the butterflies during the Industrial Revolution. I mean, you see a little white butterfly compared to a darker gray one, and it's like, hello, neon sign, I'm going to eat you now. You know, you know, the bird will just dive and kill it. Um, if there were to be a white mouse out here in our gray dirt in Idaho, it would be like painting it uh, bright orange saying, here, come and eat me. So I'm assuming that the reason we have gray mice out here is because the hawks, which are the most natural predator and are prevalent out here, would, would easily see a white mouse or a black mouse against the gray dirt. So...
1: Yeah, that... So, that makes sense i mean it's got to be a lot harder as a neon white mouse to live (laughs) um you know in whether it's the grain of the field or just the soil um hawks and eagles see what is it 20 to 100 times better than the average human yeah i'm sure they do at a distance that's just amazing so uh, a white mouse just has to light up really well
0: you mentioned when when the DNA is copied, that there, there might be a difference in, in the copy. So between one generation and the next, there's going to be a slight difference somewhere in the DNA. Is that fair to say? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, we see it just in our children. I mean, our children aren't exact copies of us. They act and live different, but there's also a lot of similarities. We'll look at our kids and we'll be like, oh man, that kid... Does the same dumb thing that I do. <laughs> and of course, <laughs> the grandmothers
0: kid, always sit back and say, I think he looks like his Uncle Joey. You know? Yeah.
1: And, <laughs> and, and so while we see their similarities, there's plenty of them. There's also slight variations and differences. Occasionally we'll see different eye color pop up when, like, both parents have blue eyes, but how do we get a different color eye or something like that? And so we know that just from one generation to the next, there's plenty of opportunity for some variation to pop up.
0: What about this, this notion that, uh, and I've heard this many times, it's a fairly common, I believe, misconception, but um, correct me if I'm wrong here. But if, if there's pressure on, oh, on an organism um, from its environment, say, for example, the white mice. You know, there's pressure from the hawks because those they're being heavily killed, more so than the gray mice. Then um, let's say there's no gray mice in the area, right? Sure. They're just just a white population. They're they're white and maybe some black ones. Um, how does the gray? Well, let's see. It does the white mouse. Can it change something to make its posterity gray? To to save it. No. Okay.
1: No, we can't. doesn't matter how badly that mouse wants to change or it, it can't change its natural color. Um, you know, if that was true, then we'd have, uh, I might get myself in trouble here, but we might have a lot of aging women who would miraculously change their color of their hair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> aging aging women who grays. change the color of their
1: hair. <laughs> yeah. They'd get rid of their grays and they'd be, you know, their dark Black or they're jet black or they're blonde or whatever color they wanted it to be if you know? they
0: could wish it and, to change. And, and,
1: yeah, I <laughs> will get in trouble here.
0: You, you might get in trouble. <laughs> we, there might be a few people which we might have to put a disclaimer on this episode saying, "Do not listen." Mike will will and, get himself in trouble.
1: Yeah. So, but um, no, it's so so. The mouse he can't. The mouse can't change his own color, but but it's highly likely. That if you have a, any possibility of a gray mouse or two popping up just as a result of the you know mice breeding that we could imagine the gray mice would have a opportunity to then reproduce a little better than the white or the or the black mice right. because they match the environment better and so over time you'd shift from a white mouse population to a gray mouse population and we Makes see sense. that with a lot of our invasive species um your Rus- russian thistle in in uh southern idaho there oh yeah it's not <laughs> it's not native no it out competes it outcompetes the other the other plants and a lot of plants because something that it does is it it just pr- out produces the others it's, it's more better successful.
0: for this environment than something else was
1: Yeah, even though the the native ones would have been just fine, just left alone. But then you introduce something new and they can't outcompete that thistle.
0: Oh, gosh. And another one that Idaho has to be, you know, whoever brought it in. And it's another Russian one. I'm not going to be anti-Russian here, but uh, it's another Russian plant. Apparently, Russians are invasive somehow. uh, At least plants are. But this is kochia, kochia weed. I'm sure you know about kochia weed as well. Grandpa would have talked about that a bunch for you.
1: Yes uh-huh
0: Kosha was actually a, a food for cattle that was brought in because it's got you know a pretty high protein and it's good for cattle cattle love it they still love it today but the problem is it grows everywhere out here. It'll grow on terrible soil it'll grow anywhere and so you see it all over the place in southern Idaho and uh, we've since decided that alfalfa is much better as a cattle feed, because we can cut it three or four times during the summer and get four cuttings off of it, where the kochia, you cut it down once and it doesn't really come back. Okay. Um, so alfalfa is a better crop for us, but kochia, because we brought it in, it, it's now everywhere and it's it's like uh-huh. one of the banes of our existence out here.
1: Yeah, it'll grow everywhere you don't want it to. So speaking of
0: invasive species, we, we brought that one in upon ourselves on yeah. purpose and didn't realize yep. what mess we were getting into, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah well, and it's it's one of those things that you know um we don't always you know the idea of evolution has been around for a long time right at least in our current modern history yet the idea of that kosher being brought in it got brought in after the idea of evolution was presented oh yeah somehow the dots weren't connected right and that's an interesting one
0: oh yeah yeah it's it's amazing how you can understand something on the surface but not understand all of the implications that it might have correct, definitely okay well um another another thing we may point out that kind of ties in with this idea and this is just perhaps food for thought for for some of the listeners is uh and a biology teacher brought this up to me brought this to my attention um, with antibacterial soap now he said that on our bodies we need to have. Certain bacteria, they're they are beneficial to our skin. They actually help our skin be healthy. It's good to have. A, a, well, we're going to have bacteria on us no matter what we do, right? Um, but there are there are good bacteria, bad bacteria. We could get into like probiotics. Um, so anyway, so when we wash ourselves with antibacterial soap, we're we're washing out or wiping out the good and the bad bacteria, and then we're leaving a void on our skin, which inevitably, well you can guess what will happen. The, the bacteria that is the quickest reproducer, whether it's a good one or a bad one, is probably going to be the one that's then covering the skin. Would you, would you say that would be right?
1: Yeah, I mean, to a, to a certain extent, that's, that's, um, that, that's generally true. One of the things about some of those antibacterial um, soaps is s- some of the ingredients are actually in- meant and intended to stay on the skin. Um, for extended periods of time. They don't wash off right away. Uh-huh. And so they'll, they'll have a lingering effect on certain um, bacteria. So we'll find that just like with the Roundup or other things, you're selecting for bacteria that are resistant to that antibacterial uh, ingredient. Uh. And so then suddenly when you need it, to be able to do its thing, it doesn't. And so we see that with antibiotic-resistant bacteria and other things like that.
0: So eventually those bacteria will become more, more, uh, more available or, or more plentiful than they were before?
1: Yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, well, then, is antibacterial soap something that makes sense to use on a daily basis or do we save it for certain times when we need it?
0: Like when we have a cut or something that we need to keep clean?
1: Yeah, or our antibiotics. Do we use those in every case or do we just use those when it seems like we really need it? So then we sense. minimize our selection of bacteria that are potentially resistant to these drugs.
0: That makes sense. Another one of those things that uh, I'm sure when antibiotics were first developed, that was not something that we thought about.
1: No, we use them all the time and they're amazing when when they oh, yeah. do what we need them to. They're amazing.
0: Right. But there's a cost to, to all those all those wonderful things sometimes.
1: Definitely. Okay. Wonderful.
0: Anything else along the line of uh, DNA or mutations that we want to cover?
1: So I think it's I, I think it's important to understand that like like we talked about with the mice uh, their desire to change their hair color or whatever. It's not something that's a guided process. Evolution is something that's happens as a result of pressure being placed on an organism and the lineage of the organism as it deals with the pressure that's put on it. So it's not, it's not necessarily that like, oh, this pressure happens On this organism and then the organism goes through this thinking process of changing itself right it doesn't get to do that
0: so um in talking about evolution the one typically given credit for i guess you could say the discovery of evolution or or really what happened is he developed the hypothesis of organic evolution um and that is darwin charles darwin who's given that that credit um how or what were what were Darwin's discoveries, Mike? That uh, that led him to develop that hypothesis.
1: So um, Darwin had multiple contemporaries, and uh, Darwin kind of gets most of the credit for kind of our modern understanding of evolution. He because he kind of packaged ev- everything together. So he pulled from different well from his other contemporaries he, he he put together a book the origin of species and um it found wide circulation through the through the world i think as we kind of look at the history and story of darwin the the story that gets the most attention when we talk about darwin is often his experience as a traveler on the ship HMS Beagle and he went to the Galapagos Islands as part of the part of his travel and he sees just a totally different range of organisms and animals and things that he never saw anywhere else and it kind of helped solidify and kind of like bring all these ideas together for him and then he began the process of of writing his book and putting it in something that was a little more coherent than, the, than you know, a bit here and a bit there from other, others that he was working with.
0: Very good. That makes sense. And I uh, might point out, too, for the listening audience, if they – well, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the movie was inspired by, by Darwin's trip, but uh, the movie Master and Commander, the doctor on that ship – um, got his chance to go to the Galapagos Islands, and then they they spent some time. He spent some time writing down and and documenting some of his findings. and uh, And of course, the Galapagos are a good place to learn about evolution because I'm guessing it's it's a little isolated from from a lot of the surrounding areas. So there's not much interaction between the life there and the life on on landforms nearby. Which is yeah. there's nothing really nearby
1: so far away from anything else i mean i i don't think for several hundred miles in any direction there's a another chain of islands so
0: an isolated laboratory i guess you could say to see what happens when life changes yeah or when life changes when uh when when species evolve
1: Sticking yeah on the topic. either either way species evolve or life changes like one sounds a little fancier than the other, but I think they get kind of the same idea. <laughs> <laughs> we
0: hope so. We hope so, anyway. Yeah. Another thing that uh, that Darwin discussed, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but he had kind of a diagram of how life might have come from, from one single organism, right? And expanded out to all the varieties that we have and that he observed um, in, his, in his studies. Um, so we all have a common ancestry. Um, that creates some difficulties for for people in their religious understanding, and uh, one of those is that Adam was the first man, we're taught in the Bible, and so now we have this this quandary that our minds are going to. Well, wait a minute. If Adam's the first man, then and evolution, and we all came from from some other thing, and all species came from some other thing that's not it's not going to resolve easily correct um yeah
1: the um the the and and it it could even be a deeper quandary because when you read um when when we read the creation story at least in the old testament it talks about how in the creative periods the there's a separation between when Adam was placed and the animals were placed, and when the plants were placed.
0: Right. Yep. Started so plants first, I think. While, and-
1: however we say there's a common ancestor between all of those things. Right. Cause the plants use DNA too and the animals use DNA. And so do we.
0: Now another thing we've, we've talked about, um, how Darwin discovered what he did and we, we can understand, you know, I, I can see how, you know, going to the Galapagos islands and seeing the the variations of the creatures that were there and his, his ability to to link how they kind of had similar features and, and how things might have changed between them. Uh, I see how that all works. Is Is there any indication in anything that you've read that, that Darwin had an ax to grind with, with religion or, or with the idea of the creation as it was understood at his time?
1: N- not that I see from anything that I've read. Um, it seems as if what Darwin was looking at was just trying to come up with some answers or, and some questions to help understand the world that he was living in a little better. And I think that's all that it was. Um, So
0: he was just being uh, a good scientist.
1: Yeah, just, just, and, and he was among a group of people that were asking these kinds of questions. So, I mean, we all know that the, the people that we hang around with will entertain ideas and questions. And so that's, that's what he was doing. I mean, I don't think it was, um, any of these particular people were after, uh, a, a, after religion in any way, necessarily. I think in a lot of ways they would consider themselves kind of like God fearing people. Yeah. I'd imagine like, I don't think any scientist goes about with the goal of, Hey, I'm gonna, um, I mean, I think we have some now that will do that, but I don't. I don't think most scientists go after things with an axe to grind or some grudge, and they if because we just we don't we don't influence people in positive ways usually through through a you know through a, through that kind of a a, a dialogue, and so um, I, I think the biggest thing is when people would people will read some of these ideas, and there can be some implications of. Uh, a conflict between some of the ideas that come from evolution and s- some of the ideas that may be interpreted from the Bible, and uh, I, I I think that's a scary place. And when people get in scary places, they'll respond in ways that we that don't always show the best side of humanity.
0: Well, I can think we've all seen evidence of that. So. Mike, when, when I was younger, and this was taught to me for the first time, I remember distinctly thinking, you know, natural selection, that makes sense. I get it. I understand natural selection, and I don't i don't doubt that that happens. And even, you know, DNA mutations in, in the, or, you know, not exact copies of the DNA replication process, um, that all made sense. But the idea of a species changing from one species to another, as we see as, as part of evolution, like we we see the the classic pictures of the the precursors to humankind you know we've got the i don't even remember Magnon. you know there there were other you you would probably remember better than i do but the the monkey like um creatures that eventually became humankind um and i couldn't i couldn't buy that part that part didn't make sense can can you sure. help me understand how that would work how that's possible so
1: well, I think it's important to, like, um, those those ancestors of the modern human, they're ancestors of the modern human, so they actually didn't evolve into the modern human. They just were precursors of the modern human. Okay. So, um, we can... I, there's a couple of examples that kind of come to my mind when I think about the small changes that would allow us to get to a different species. Um, The modern dog, right? Our modern dog is all kinds of, has all kinds of different looks to it. (laughs) Yeah. You got pug all the
0: way to like great Pyrenees outside. Yeah.
1: Yeah, our modern horse—it's the same thing. Like, and you could even have somebody who probably is a hundred years old, who could look at the horses today and say, "Man, they're different than they were a hundred years ago." And okay. intentionally, we've changed—you know—we've intentionally changed the dog and the horse over time to fulfill certain roles for us as humans. And so,
0: by by selective you know, the, breeding and and things like that—is that what you're talking about?
1: Exactly. So. You know, there's examples just, we don't even have to look back that far in history and we can see the, at one point there were giant sloths all over North America. And we don't have those anymore, but I mean, 10 to 20,000 years ago, we had giant sloths all over and they're gone now, but we have a different sloth that we can see in South America. They're smaller, they're not as big. Um, right. There's sense. fish. The the stickleback fish um, is another example of something that is even a smaller change. Um, if if you put the stickleback fish in a certain place, it'll go out to salt water, and in other places it won't. And when it's in salt water, it actually behaves differently than when it is in, and it looks different as well. We see those changes in salmon. So that's a hybrid fish also, that can
0: be ocean bound or. Or fresh water is that what I'm hearing there with this? What did you call it? The stickleback. It's stickleback, yeah.
1: And um, and and so there's plenty of examples of animals being able to change in small ways, which affects their behavior and their environment. And we've already talked about how the environment plays a role in in uh, the in the organisms that have um, the opportunity to continue to reproduce or not.
0: So just to make sure I understand, you're, you're saying that whatever precursor species to, to mankind, whatever it was, it didn't jump and change into a human. It through a series of tiny changes which if we were to look back on any moment of time, we wouldn't have recognized it as our ancestor. But as you add up all those all the cumulative changes throughout the years, and that we're talking, you know, millions of years, that it has become something that we would recognize as as a as a human.
1: Sure. Yeah. And it's, and, and, and you can't, we, we can't say, you know, it it to a certain extent, it doesn't quite do it justice to say, oh, Cro-Magnon man is our ancient grandfather.
0: Right. <laughs>
1: right? Be, because Cro-Magnon man isn't exactly the same as us. You know, it's like there was a precursor humanoid that was from Cro-Magnon man that we came from but they're not the same species as us so there's a speciation event that caused them to separate and become different Okay. and then you end up with modern human
0: and that makes a lot of sense and uh, speaking of dogs you'll you'll hear the Great Pyrenees outside if you're listening closely here Uh, I might have to mute the audio he's being very helpful right now another couple of things um we mentioned Adam's the first man. That's one area of conflict. There's a couple of others that are closely related. And one of them is, is that there was no death before Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden. Well, obviously, that's we, we might have some trouble interpreting the Scripture if we, if we do believe that species do evolve and that's how mankind came to be in the first place. Because if, that, if that's the case, then there had to be death and there had to be DNA replication going on before Adam. Correct? Yes. Definitely. I,
1: <laughs> I, I, I agree. Like it, in my mind, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, to um, take that s- story in a literal way and piece together evolution inside the story as well, they, they conflict in that sense, at least apparently so.
0: Right. There's no, no obvious resolution to that. Um, what do we call that? Uh, two diverging thoughts. There's no yeah, resolution.
1: Be, it's something, maybe uh, a paradox might be a uh, there you go. one way of saying yep. it, I think yep. perhaps. Um, so dissonant might be another idea. There it. you go. Um, Definitely dissonance the, in the two. The, uh, according to evolution, to have arrived at man, you needed a lot more time and a lot more death before you got to Adam. Right. Yeah.
0: And again, we're assuming we started with, well, and I don't know if Darwin said a single-celled organism. I don't know if he's, no. he said that. I think that came later. No. Yep. Mm-hmm. But uh But either way, common common parentage was his idea.
1: Yeah. So the thing about science that's one of science's biggest difficulties is it doesn't tell us why we would want to live. Right. Right. Like it it struggles with it struggles with giving us a purpose for why we should why we should be good or why we should care. Right. Like it struggles with giving us a reason for being. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's void of it, but I, I, it's not nearly as clear. It's not nearly as clear as giving us a purpose for being as, as something like the Bible does, right? Like the, the Bible's had the benefit of time, to, you know, thousands of, potentially, you know, a couple, three, 4,000 years, depending on how you want to figure out how old the Bible is. Right. Like, it's had a lot of time to evolve into something that gives us an explanation and a purpose for why we would want to live. And right. science really hasn't got that far. Science has only been doing what it's been doing for maybe a couple hundred years. Right. And science hasn't figured out good answers for that yet and, because. Oh, go ahead. Oh, anyway, go. So, um, and, 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 and so the one, I think one of the struggles that we see with the idea of like evolution or, you know, any kind of science minded idea with the religious minded idea where they seemingly conflict is that, um, they, uh, they approach, they, they approach how we, you know, our purpose for being, um, in, in different ways.
0: Right. So which is well i think it's fair to say in science that's not the primary question typically because it's not something we can easily find an answer to
1: yeah often like science is at its best when it it's not looking a reason for um uh, it's not looking at a reason for it's it's just asking like how or why exactly you know yeah. so um, but which that's I, not necessarily, I should,
0: I should point out a pet peeve and I'm sorry to interrupt, but a pet peeve that I have, and it's in science documentaries all the time that will tell us why birds have certain features and oh, why, yes. yeah. And they, they sell it like that. And that is not science. science. No, it's not. I mean, we, we don't even probably know why a dog has a tail. Right. Right. If, if there's a why. We don't. We don't worry about the why, we, we just know, know that it does. Yeah. And we worry about why does uh-huh. it, how did it get it, you know, is our, as our yeah. primary question, not what purpose does it serve? It may not serve much. Yeah, many times um, people will bob them off, you know, <laughs> when they're little, you yeah. know, cut the tail right. off. They don't need it. Yeah. Like our uh-huh. appendix. So,
1: yeah.
0: okay. Yeah, and, and, I didn't and, mean to interrupt um, your flow. Go ahead and continue with.
1: Well, no, I mean, and it doesn't, It, it it's like, we don't, um, you know, and, and, and that's the challenge. Like, I, th- I think there's a real, uh, uh, there's a real tendency to allow bad science to give us poor explanations for why. And I think we can look at that. And if you're, if, if you're in a religious mindset, then you can look at the poor science and you can be like, see, science is garbage. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right? Um, unfortunately, like, I think that's very true. Thing. You can do that same thing. If you're in the science mind, you can say, Hey, I'm in the science minded place. I'm going to be critical of religion and be like, look, Jim Jones, purple Kool-Aid religion bad.
0: Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, look at what he convinced those people to do.
1: Yeah. And so like, I, th- I think that's a real danger when, when, when we, when, when we get caught up in um, these weird places of, of of criticizing bad we criticize the bad it doesn't serve anything well it's it serves them very poorly right like we're we're at our best as humans when we critique the best in science and we critique the best in religion because when we do that and we conscientiously look at What's the best that religion has to offer, and what's the best that science has to offer? Then we actually can really get to things that like make humanity better. I think.
0: Oh, agreed. Very much so.
1: Yes, and so. it's hard when we're when we're fired up because we read some kind of um, what's the word? Some kind of um, newspaper article or something that's incendiary for oh, yeah. us to wind it down and turn it back and just look at the points of interest and to stay out of the emotional space of it.
0: To have a more cool head and a perspective that, that will lead us through the information as opposed to incensing in us. <laughs> yes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for for spending time with us, Michael. I I, uh, I greatly appreciate your your time and your knowledge on this subject and uh, your, your willingness to share with us.
1: Well, I appreciate it. It's been fun talking about uh, talking about this thing. It's something that I get to talk about occasionally in, in different places with different, um, different people, and um, it's been a good time. Thank you.
0: I'd like to thank again Michael Gardner for the interview that he gave us. That concludes the interview, and this concludes this episode of The Religions Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and hopefully you've learned something important from it. Please, if you don't subscribe, subscribe. The best way to do that, or the easiest way to do that, is to download a podcasting app. I personally use Google Podcasts, and with it, I subscribe to the Religions channel, and every time a new episode comes out, it'll tell me. Also, I'm very thankful to those who give word of mouth to uh, to their friends, to let them know about the Religions podcast. That's how we spread the word here. So... Please, if you've enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend and let them know what, what you've learned and let them know where to find it. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. This is Stephen Gardner here at Religions.